You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. And actually, on a busy day for Vikings News, it's Purple Access. Every other Thursday, we are joined by Tyler Fornis, who is my uh, colleague, uh, heck, my editor, my boss, at VikingsWire.com, which, as I've said, is the best place you could possibly go for one-stop Vikings News shopping in the written con- content form. And also, Tyler uh, has his show on there as well. It's Judd, it's Declan, and Forno, I want to start here. Uh, so, Dalvin Cook, there is a report out there that he is going to be released by the Vikings. It sounds mm-hmm. like Cord Adam Schefter, they're going to make one last ditch effort to try and trade him. So, the official news on the release probably won't come until tomorrow, and we'll get to that. But I, I want to start with the Ian Rappaport report, NFL Network, yesterday on Daniil Hunter. Um, no surprise with what his base salary is scheduled to be in 2023 that Daniil has not been at OTAs. Daniil wants a new contract. We have been here before and seen this before. And it had been very, very quiet on Daniil until yesterday when Rappaport reports that there are teams calling the Vikings about making a trade for Daniil Hunter. If such a trade is made, and we don't know that, this could actually end up in an extension by next week for Daniil. But if a trade is made and the Vikings move Daniil Hunter, is it a is, is it a nod to the potential of a rebuild by this team or is it just part of the machinations of how things go sometimes with veteran contracts? I think we got to start here and I'm going to come out uh, with a little bit of a scorcher. If the Vikings end up trading Daniil Hunter before training camp, I think it's a failure by the front office and let's kind of dive into the why. And it all starts with the contract he signed with Rick Spielman. He signed a bad contract. We've known that for a long time. He's never going to recoup that money. They did move money around early on in that deal to try and give him more. But at the end of the contract, he's going to bring home a total of 5.5 max value in cash this year with a 4.9 million base salary. You knew you were going to have to do something to fairly compensate him. And then Ian Rapport coming out and saying last or yesterday that they were, tried to do a Band-Aid contract with him. That doesn't sit right with me. And that does, shouldn't sit right with Hunter's camp either. Because when you look at it, he's already felt like he was taken advantage of by the first front office. Now you have a new front office coming in, and they don't want to commit to me long-term after I show that I can still be healthy, I can still be a really, really good edge rusher. He's a top-10 edge rusher in football, and they only want to do a Band-Aid contract with me? Like, what are we doing here? And when you layer everything, and the fact that you'd have to trade him in June, July, or August, and not be able to replace him in a pretty good edge class where you could have got let's say a late first round pick and taken a miles murphy as like almost a one-to-one replacement to me that that just says it's a failure of the front office especially after you just traded as a darius smith and you're trying to do this competitive rebuild taking a hit on the salary cap and not being able to do anything about it until 2024 just it'd be a front office failure and i think that's really the only way i can put it I'll have a written piece on vikingswire.com later today or tomorrow 
kind of diving even more into it, but it's it would be incredibly disappointing and really the first major, in my opinion, flop of the Quasi Dopo Mensa era. So Tyler, what would a new contract look like, you think, for Daniil, if you were you and Quasi were working out that negotiation? I saw PFF Brad, you know, uh, kind of kick around the idea of a three-year deal with like 37 guaranteed. Uh, if you were paying that man, what type of contract do you think uh, you'd like to offer to Daniil Hunter? So fun fact, if you go to vikingswire.com, I wrote an extensive piece on that where I also broke down past contracts. And one thing I look at with these deals, it's not just what the market is paying for a talented player. It's also what the market is paying a talented player on their third contract. And I think that's the key here. Yes, he's only 28 years old and he'll be 29 by the end of this contract. But a third contract is different than a second contract because you're worried about them coming out of their prime. You're worried about how just the wear and tear of playing in the trenches is going to impact them long-term. The three-year, or sorry, the six-year $120 million deal that Von Miller signed with the Bills is essentially a three-year deal worth just over $60 million. And then the other two contracts that I found even com- close to comparable, Chandler Jones signed a three-year $51 million contract with the Las Vegas Raiders, and Zadarius Smith, three years $42 million with the Vikings, which in essence was only a two-year deal. I projected three years, $57 million for $19 million average annual value with, uh, I believe I said, $38 million guaranteed. So we're on a similar path. I don't think he's going to get like this super top of the market money because of his age, because he has that little little bit of an injury history. I think you could also layer it with incentives to maybe put that max value a little higher. But he's on a third contract. Guys on their third contract, unless they're quarterbacks, don't make a ton of money. And it's for good reason. So I think you you just hit on a really key point here too. And I think this discussion, um, there's blame to go around for sure, okay? First of all, Daniil, who has been very, very loyal to his agent, and I don't exactly know why, to your point, signed a terrible contract. That, that ain't the Vikings' fault. That's his mm-hmm. fault. And then he basically said, well, I'm not going to play unless you and, – and so the Vikings then went and took some of the cash out of the last two years of that contract – moved it up, gave him, I think, an $18 million balloon payment a couple marches ago. But the reality was it's a terrible contract, and it was a second contract, and it should have been it should have been one he killed on. And instead, mm-hmm. he, took, he took a team-friendly deal, which he was applauded for at the time, but ultimately he's not very smart. And you're right. You're not going to fix that. Um, we, we talked about this today on uh, Purple Daily as well. Now, if the Vikings are now offered a first-round pick in 24 for him, I would be very tempted to make that move where I have a problem. And I will tie this in slightly to the Dalvin cook thing where I have a problem. Tyler is this. If the Vikings are going to find out that Daniel, like Daniel not being happy with the last year of this contract is no surprise. Like you said, he's grossly underpaid. Mm -hmm. If the Vikings knew this all along and could have got a first round pick, for instance, why wouldn't you have done that in March? You know, Dalvin Cook mm-hmm. clearly from reports could have been traded to the Dolphins in March for a draft pick. I don't know exactly where, but they overvalued Cook. So I think where Quazy has made missteps is you can't drag things out. You need to pounce, in my opinion. And in both of those cases, he potentially didn't pounce. But I also don't have a problem with the Vikings probably now drawing a line in the sand because this is his third contract and he turns 29 in October and I sure as hell personally and would not get give him 
five years. So if they don't like the term, that's really their problem. And mm-hmm. it's going to have to be resolved. I, I know that. But this also comes a lot on the, the Hunter camp because they so badly mismanaged that second contract. Absolutely. And this is a very layered conversation with Dalvin Cook. So let's start here. I have no problem with them waiting because with the salary cap constraints, the like doing something after June 1st made the most sense with him. And because like a post June 1st designation, like you're not getting that salary cap space anyway until June 1st. So you might as well just wait it out and see what you can get accomplished. Now, uh, I heard you say on Purple Daily a couple days ago, Judd, that you had heard a rumor of a third round pick. Well, when you talk about a third round pick, if they said no to that, like that, right? That's that's criminal. Like you should have said yes to that immediately. Right. If that ends up being true, and I think that's the caveat. Um, my guess is they weren't offered that, and waiting and trying to kind of play it out, considering what the salary cap um, ramifications were, I think was a smart play. Uh, Brad Spielberger, uh, who Declan mentioned earlier, mentioned that because of that $2 million guaranteed, when he signs his new contract, the Vikings likely get that salary cap space back due to offset language. So that that can be another $2 million for the Vikings in salary cap space, which is honestly a really good thing. But this this whole thing where they're just trying to kind of hold out, it's it, it kind of boils down to, to – assets in the stock market, which is what we're going to continue to relate crazy to. Um, Like, I don't know if you guys ever watched the show Pawn Stars, but that when they go in, let's, let's say they go in with a pet rock from the 1980s. All right. Let's say the expert comes in and values that pet rock at $10,000. You have to find somebody to pay $10,000 for that pet rock. That doesn't mean that you're always going to get what it's worth. And I think that's a really key part of this Daniel Hunter discussion. I place his value as a first round and a third round pick based on all factors included based on previous trades for like star players of his caliber. At the end of the day, who's going to pay a first and a third? Probably nobody. I would, I would suggest that they're going to get the Khalil Mack trade where that he went to the chargers yeah. a second and a day three pick. That's probably yeah. going to be better than a six because of where Hunter is in his career versus Mack. But you have to look at it. What are you going to get versus what they're actually worth? And that's where that Pawn Stars thing comes in. Rick and those guys don't pay market value. They pay based on margins so they can make money. And that's what these NFL teams are going to be offering the Vikings. They're going to want to profit from this move and not overpay. And I think that that, that way of thinking is going to eventually hurt the Vikings if they end up moving Hunter because I don't think you're going to have this massive sweepstakes to go get him. Mm-hmm. So gut feeling here, Tyler, now that they're you know, reporting that they're fielding trade calls or they're getting serious offers here, um, what's the resolution here? What, do, what does your gut tell you? Do they end up trading Daniil? Do they end up giving him a contract extension? Where, where do you kind of, uh, on your pendulum swing here, where do you think this ends up? Uh, what, what, what's the final resolution here with Daniil Hunter and the Vikings? My gut says is they trade him because they're not going to give him anything close to what he wants. If they're only offering a Band-Aid contract for what this player currently is, they could say all they want that they value him in their long-term plans, but they're not bringing out the checkbook to show how much they actually value him. And to me, that speaks volumes. Now, this is obviously an outside view looking inward. But one thing I found interesting, Judd, is I was doing a bunch of research last night for this piece I'm writing. I didn't find any direct question about Daniil Hunter from any of the press over the last six months. Not one. There wasn't during OTAs. 
Not one asking about the contract, not one asking about his status. And I understand that there are other things going on, but not one, considering you know that this contract situation is looming, considering you know how upset he was with that first contract and how they tried to remedy it. Mm-hmm. That this just it this screams messy ending. And uh, you kind of you've referenced it a few times. Like this is going to be real adversity for Quasi Dolphamensa for the first time since he took over. It's been a lot of sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. But if he if they end up trading him, I'm considering this a front office failure based on what my current view is. And there, there are decisions to be made here as well. And now if they end up trading him and get a first round pick, um, there were missteps for sure. I, I don't know if I'm upset about that, but there. There are the thing about this is the Vikings now have a a list of important decisions, and I don't mean veteran players, Thielen, mm-hmm. Kendricks, Patrick Peterson, Dalvin, Siabai. I I mean young players or key players in Hunter's case because I still consider him to be a key player who have contracts coming up. Justin Jefferson, that's going to be a huge one. T.J. Hawkinson, that's important, and he's going to want want to be paid, and he deserves it um hunter's conch so like there are decisions here as well like they the adversity to me and it was inevitable tyler is the fact that quasi is now going to be faced in brzezinski and o'connell they're now going to be faced with decisions that you know a year ago could be put off can't be put off now and so this is where i think it's going to get really intriguing about how they go about their business and probably try and keep themselves at least partially out of the cab hell that you know, for a while because of Kirk Cousins, they experienced for what felt like a prolonged period and it was probably three or four years. Yeah, I, th- I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head that uh, prolonged cap issues. Um, and one thing that I will give Quasi Dolphamensa credit, he's, he's continuing to try to field a competitive team while remedying the mistakes that Rick Spielman made at the end. Because he, like the Eric Kendricks contract, I had, I had no issues with. Like it was set up really well, and they were able to get out of it this offseason with 1.5 million in dead cap. They didn't push any money for forward. They uh, he kind of fell off a cliff a little bit considering what he was, oh, God, and they yeah. moved on. Yep. Adam Thielen restructuring that deal last year was a massive mistake. Yep. I said it at the time, and I believe you guys did too. He's on the downturn of his career, and you're pushing that much money forward. Well, like, the question there too is. In retrospect now, Forno, my question is this. Did they want to do that? That move made so little sense that it felt like it came from above them. Because, like, Quasi and O'Connell had no there, – there's no there – would, there would have been zero reason for them to say, we've watched film and Thielen still looks like he's 26. I, I don't think it's a mistake that they ran that entire Zimmer final team back, which they basically did. And I don't think that was crazy. And I don't think that was because there's no way a good football ops department. And and mm-hmm. look, Ryan Poles, who was the first choice here, Ryan Poles told the Wilfs, I want to do what he eventually did in Chicago, right? And that mm-hmm. was a non-starter. So like and, and now there's some there's some revisionist history about oh the Vikings, you know, they set the culture with that team and that team, blah, blah, blah. I don't think there's any way on God's green earth that Quasi and Kevin O'Connell had any interest in bringing back that entire team. So I do wonder, because the Thielen restructure, to your point, was just flat-out dumb. I wonder, in retrospect, if that came from, we are not going to get rid 
of this guy for at least a year because it made from a football ops standpoint zero sense. And I think when you look specifically at Thielen's contract, yeah, there were other things you could have done to save some salary cap space, but to do that with Thielen, it it really rubbed me the wrong way from kind of a business sense. Like yep. you can say, hey, we're going to keep this guy and we're going to keep this guy here in 2022, but that doesn't mean you have to push money forward. And I, I think that was a really big mistake. But when you kind of look at the the broad view, like I, I want to kind of take this a little bit of a different direction, Judd. When sure. you look at this, how Quasey's continuing to build this team, and we talked about how he's moved on from those Spielman guys, and Harrison Smith is going to be like one of the last like Spielman Zimmer guys that mm-hmm. that is really stuck around. He's probably gone after this year due to how they restructured that contract. With the Dalvin Cook release, they're going to have $54.3 million in salary cap space for next year. You, you got to think Jefferson's getting a good portion of that. You get, um, And he has got a $20 million cap hit already on the books next year. So you could balloon that. Yeah, you could balloon good. that. Like, hey, good point. balloon it to 30. Yep. Just, like, just spike that cap number now and Amen. save yourself a little money down the road. TJ Hawkinson, I would project. He doesn't have any cap money next year. I project $15 million about. And then you have Christian Derisaw. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to give him that extension right away? Which you probably should considering left tackle money. Laramie Tunsil is the Trent Williams of the world and how much they're making. Get him on now so you don't have to worry about paying him even more later. Mm-hmm. That, that takes up a good amount of your cap space. And if you extend Cousins, you can recoup some of that $28 million in, in cap space just by kind of playing with math. So they're trying to build this team from the ground up. They're going to play a lot of young guys this year. They're, they're counting on that 2022 class. And I think that 2022 class is going to say a lot about how we view Kwesi Opelmensa going into 2024 because he's counting on those guys to play big roles this year. And as we kind of have that finish that broad picture view, I think that's really going to set him apart. If we view him as a potential real future GM, or if he could be a three years and done kind of guy. And that that's, I think it's going to say a lot. This is Tom Bernard. Can't get enough of sports talk with Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad. Tune in to the new Tom Bernard show podcast Monday through Friday, as Phil and Judd join me to discuss the latest sports headlines and whatever else comes to mind. Just download the Tom Bernard show app, wherever you get your podcasts or visit Tom show.com. It's another way to get more from me and Judd talking sports and having fun with Tom, and it's all at your fingertips. Download the Tom Bernard Show app now and join the conversation. Borno, on the Dalvin Cook front, so obviously the Vikings now move on from Dalvin. They wait Mm -hmm. probably three months longer than they should have if they indeed had a trade offer in place in March. No revisionist history. I would have pulled the trigger on that. Uh, What do you make of the Vikings finally now moving on from Dalvin Cook, which was a divorce that we've been basically seeing, seeing coming for the last three months? Frustrating you couldn't get a trade done, but it's also not a surprise you couldn't get a trade done. Um, uh, the team would inherit over $10 million um, in base salary. That's a lot for a running back, and you're seeing a lot of people continue to talk about how you shouldn't give a running back a second contract because of X, Y, and Z. There really hasn't been a second running back contract in the last decade that's been worth it, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just a lot of factors. The thing with running backs is you're going to get a lot of surplus value from them early on, even from a guy like Ezekiel Elliott, you got surplus value, even though he was a top five pick. But once you gave him $15 million a year, how much surplus value are you getting? You're getting that from Tony Pollard. So 
when you when you have these guys, give them the four or five years on the rookie deal, give them a franchise year, and then move on because we're seeing continuously. Todd Gurley's knees went kablooey. Like, this is a consistent pattern with second uh, contract running backs. Christian McCaffrey is still successful, but he also missed a couple years, the majority of it, due to injuries. Yep. You have to be really, you have to play the odds with some of these, and running backs get injured more often than a lot of positions due to the physical nature of it. You're running into defensive linemen consistently, and you're really counted on to be explosive with cuts. Puts a lot of pressure on your knees. And wide receivers don't get injured at nearly as high of a clip because they're not asked to do a lot of the same things. Now, can they? Yeah. Look at Debo Samuel. Like, obviously an extreme example, but he uses those kind of explosive cuts. He's great in the open field. Jefferson is really explosive with how he runs his routes and how he plants his foot. And he's able to, like, that return route against Stephon Gilmore in the Colts game where he faked the whip route and then went back outside. Like, those are the kind of special things that he can do. And when you look at everything, that's that's kind of all-encompassing. And like running backs, you just don't want to give a second contract to. Absolutely. Yeah, because the and part of the problem too with backs is this the the simple wear and tear from playing on turf. So like if you play your home games like Cook did on turf, guess what? Mm-hmm. You take I mean it's been improved, but turf remains a real pain in the ass to play on. So that's a problem, too. Uh, uh, Tyler, I, w- I want to get back to a comment that you made before uh, Declan's question about Quasi. So, because I think that there's just so many intriguing unknowns here about him. What does your gut say about the about what he's doing, the, the direction? Because I do agree <laughs> there, there are missed opportunities. I'm with you. I think at the end of the day, the first thing that we can really judge potentially harshly or praise him for is the drafts. Uh, But what does your gut say about a guy who definitely was not on the radar of the majority of teams to be a GM um, and does play this like the stock market, which I don't completely agree with on player evaluation. Sometimes I think that that's, I I think sports are different, Uh, but what's your early, I guess, impression of what you're seeing from him I think my early impression is that people are going to judge him unfairly because he's the first of his kind and he is the first analytics GM not named Sashi Brown he's the first guy that's ever really come from outside of the world of football to run a football team like he's going to get judged unfairly because of that whenever you're the first whenever you're the trailblazer you get a lot more scrutiny whether fair or not Yep, And I think that's my main takeaway so far. Every, everybody's just like nitpicking every little thing. But when you look at the all-encompassing view, he is setting this team up to be as flexible as possible financially so they can make decisions on some of these guys, so they can be more calculated and aggressive with their moves. I liked what he said pre-draft this year when talking about the number of picks. He said, last year we had a lot of picks. You don't want to make a lot of picks every single year those guys aren't going to continue. You're going to have guys not make the team and having six picks this year after 10 last year. Now you have 16 players from the 2022 and 2023 draft classes to build upon. And I think that's kind of a really smart view of things. I don't think you necessarily need to like do the Rick Spielman thing. He preferred to have like a bunch of seventh round picks 
So then he didn't have to go hard at UDFAs. Yes, he could just exactly. kind of pick and choose. There's yep. merit to that, but yep. you're also looking at uh, having to pay out a lot of signing bonus for guys you're going to end up cutting. Like there's there's give and take there. So when when you look at everything, I'm I think he's doing a good job in trying to set us up. How he's making some of these football non financial decisions, but just who the players are, I think is going to be really telling. And you and I were discussing it last night. The Ryan Grigson factor is so intriguing and, and as you kind of mentioned, kind of scary because of how poorly he made football decisions in Indianapolis. Now you can learn from your mistakes, but that doesn't mean those same mistakes will kind of creep up on you. And I'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive to see who he was taking in Indianapolis to try and see if there's any correlation that equals causation kind of thing. But how he's prioritizing the football players, not not the dollars, not the cents, not the assets, the football players, and how that transpires is really going to set the table because it's not his background. Yeah, Forno, I'm just curious with how people are going to assess, I think, Kwesi here, just because I think a lot of people love the TJ Hawkinson trade, which they rightfully so should have. I, I would have done that, and I still would have done that move. Uh, but, you know, the Lewis scene pick is kind of wishy-washy here. That entire draft class I know was was banged up, didn't uh, didn't obviously get on the field a lot this last season either. So I, I feel like people are starting to like get out on Kwesi. And to me, I think that's far too early. I, I think you have to kind of let this play out for a year or two. But in the nature of NFL GMs and being cutthroat league, I mean, you don't get this isn't a baseball dynasty where you get seven years to really build up, you know, your own farm system. You got three to five years here to really mm-hmm. make some hay. Otherwise, you're back on the chopping block, just like, you know, so many other GMs and coaches end up being if they end up making some fatal mistakes uh, by, by, by being too slow or too, uh, too dumb, basically, to make the right moves. Yeah, I, I think he really hit the nail on the head. And the fact that he only signed a four-year contract, whether that was his choice, whether that was the Wilfs directive and he just agreed to it, I thought that really spoke volumes about, hey, let's kind of see where this goes. And... You know what? It may not be a great fit long-term. It may be a phenomenal fit. We we really don't know how this is all going to play out because we've seen a lot of GMs show some struggles early and then kind of figure it out. Think less Sneed with the Rams. Now, we, we can talk about the F-them picks philosophy um, all we want. At the end of the day, he built a Super Bowl team, and mm-hmm. they won a title, and you can never take that away. But there were struggles early. There were a lot of missed draft picks. They could have capitalized a lot better on that Robert Griffin the third trade than they did. Uh, but just because you show struggles or a lot of a lot of really successful ideals early doesn't mean it's consistent. Like running a football team is very similar to being a hitter in Major League Baseball. You're going to miss a lot more than you hit. But when you get hits, how impactful are you? Are you hitting dingers? Or are you just getting on base? What does that look like? And right. for an organization like the Vikings, how how important is winning versus having a successful business? And I think winning is very important to the Wilfs, but it, it seems to me that they would rather be competitive and be financially like successful than hoisting that Lombardi trophy year in and year out, which in a, from a business sense, it makes a lot it makes a ton of sense. An eight and eight team sells a lot better than a five and twelve team, um, just because you're competitive, you're making the playoffs. Hell, they paid off U.S. Bank stadiums twenty two years early for a reason, 
because they're financially stable and they're business savvy. But the football product doesn't always reflect that. And it's weird because the Wilfs in their mind, you know, they want to be consistently good. And their their philosophy, right or wrong, and we could debate it, is if you get in the tournament, you got a chance. That's, yep. the, that's the overwhelming. And uh, there are times I say, no, you really don't. Uh, you you got it in the tournament because there's more playoff teams now, but you really didn't have a chance. So their philosophy is that of fans, and it can be a bit flawed. Just to go back last thing, though, to what you're talking about, and just to be very, just to be clear from my end here, you know, Quazy ultimately is the GM, and he's going to get a lot of credit or blame. But I would love to know, and we don't know because things are so buttoned down now. I would love to know how this is working, like between Quazy and O'Connell, and as you said, Ryan Grigson. I would love to know the inner workings of who gets what. Because I will say this: the Josh Oliver signing is O'Connell. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Like Quazy didn't like, I guess you should see this tight end from Baltimore. Um, O'Connell basically said, I couldn't do things because I didn't have a t- tight end like that that could really block. And so, and I, it feels like, and it should be, O'Connell's fingerprints are all over the offense, which they should be. But I would love to know at the end of the day how it's working and Tyler, I think the only like inside view that we got that I found to be really intriguing was the Jordan Addison pick on draft night when the Vikings released that uh, that film of Quazy talking on the phone and Grigson clearly saying, we got to make our pick. And O'Connell, you could tell, was annoyed that it wasn't Addison just right there and then because clearly the pick was being shopped. So I think there's a lot of moving parts here with different people having their their fingers in the pie what i don't know is exactly how it's structured and we still don't know to this day who has final say on the 53 you know at the end of the day with spielman it was rick and so zimmer had a lot of say but he didn't have final say necessarily so like there's just a lot of things here that are going to be intriguing to watch as they unfold because of, okay, who is ultimately making this decision or that decision? I think you raise a really good point, Judd. Who is making that final decision? How are these things uh, coming together? Is this another like triangle of authority situation where they're trying to be too collaborative? And when he talked in his initial press conferences about collaboration, I think that was a question we all had. How much of that is going to come into play? Is that going to be an issue down the line because at a certain point collaboration can be bad because nobody's making a decision. Now I do want to push back a little bit. I think Quasi continuing to shop the pick, as you kind of mentioned, is a good thing. See sure. if somebody is willing to just overpay because it's coming down to the last second and they just really want their guy. Mm-hmm. And I think always taking those calls and draining the clock as long as you can is a really smart business practice because you just never know. And that like it's almost like putting an item for auction on eBay rather than just setting it for a certain price. Maybe somebody will just overpay you for it. And I like that practice. They knew they were going to take Addison if they weren't able to like, get the right value for the pick. And I think sometimes, like as a guy in the NFL draft community, you really want a guy to go to your team because you've done all this work, you put in the time, you have a conviction about him. Mm-hmm. And someone like Grigson, who's a football scout, 
pounding the table. No, we need to make the pick. We need to make the pick. We need to make the pick. It's because he's got conviction about the player and he wants the player and he knows the player will be successful. Like I'm not reading too much into it. Quasey's doing his due diligence. O'Connell's rightfully annoyed because he knows he knows what he wants. And Grayson wants the guy because he's put in all the work. Like don't miss the pick. To, to me, it's like maybe that's his role in the room to yeah, see yeah. where the clock is and be like, no, we need to make be. a decision because of this. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to read too much into that because we just don't understand those inner workings of the front office dynamics. Great stuff, sir. Well, we will t- talk to you in two weeks. And as always, check out all of Tyler's work, my work, the entire crew, vikingswire.com. I'm telling you, outstanding stuff. He's Declan. He's Tyler. I'm Judd. We'll see you later.